Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about lifestyle medicine, an evidence-based approach that can help us in our everyday lives, and also it can help our patients. Joining me today, orthopedic spine surgeon, Ajaya Joshi. He's board certified in orthopedic surgery and lifestyle medicine. Dr. Joshi is an associate clinical professor at UT Health San Antonio and spine surgeon at South Texas Spinal Clinic. Dr. Joshi, thanks for being here. Thank you, Holly, very much for having me. So, Ajaya, tell us, do most doctors know what lifestyle medicine is? I suspect the answer is no. Most physicians won't know much about this. It's not at all a fringe movement, but it's growing in popularity, about 10 or 15 years old. Um, But right now in medical schools, I don't think it is the focus of attention in a curriculum. So, and we'll talk some more about that. Now, Ajaya, you did your medical school and residency at Harvard and your orthopedic residency and then your spine fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. That's right. But lifestyle medicine as a focus came later? It did. It was very organic. And what I mean by that is I am there in the community seeing patients and offering them care um, with the hat that I wear, which is spinal care. And many times that's physical therapy or injections. Uh, Occasionally someone uh, needs a surgery. But I was struck about five or six years ago by how many people are struggling with chronic conditions in the adult population. And by that, I mean diabetes or carrying extra weight or cholesterol issues, heart disease. And it just makes it harder to reach a good outcome, whether you're offering surgery or not. So I had a medical colleague tell me, you know, you're right. This is what we're all struggling with. And there are some tools that you can equip yourself with to talk to patients and help them. And that's where lifestyle medicine came into play. So... Um, tell me in your everyday life, Ajaya, are there things that you do for lifestyle medicine personally, like what you like to do in your spare time? Sure. So I am, uh, I think I'm in a healthy family environment where we have a a great meal plan and we're, you know, eating um, in a healthy way. Having said that, I will acknowledge that I I snack and have a sweet tooth. So I have to always keep that in check. Um, I like to exercise regularly, whether it's rowing or biking or running or um, hiking with friends. You know, getting outside is important, and these, these different activities speak to what really are the six areas that lifestyle medicine defines as you know, critical for our health. There's six foundational areas. So d- tell me about those six pillars or areas. Um, the, the movement of lifestyle medicine has talked about Uh, Diet, exercise, sleep, stress management, avoiding risky substances, and being connected or positive psychology. And there's a lot more in each of those areas. But doing our best in those areas leads to powerful, positive outcomes, um, often more so than what we have traditionally delivered in healthcare with certain prescriptions or certain procedures. And 
following the principles of lifestyle medicine, less people would need to come to you as a spine surgeon, right? Is that kind of... Yeah, and that sounds maybe counterproductive, <laughs> but I think there will always be a need for a scoliosis surgery that is inevitable or, you know, a spinal tumor that needs to be stabilized and removed um, or a disc herniation that's just not getting better with time and injections. But there are a lot of people that come in the door, and I think the, the interesting um, thing that happened is over the, over the course of time in my spinal practice, I got a chance to see a lot of different people, some of whom need the actual spinal care that I can deliver and some of whom need these other messages of lose weight, tighten up your core, you know, cut out the inflammatory stuff in your diet. So it's been a great additional message. And yeah, some of them wouldn't need surgery, but I guess ultimately that's okay. So uh, according to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, lifestyle medicine can address up to 80% of chronic diseases. Is that true? I think that's true and very, like everything else in this movement, very data-driven and, you know, mainstream published research with strong, you know, evidence behind it. So it's true because if you look at main categories, including cardiovascular disease, like stroke, heart disease, renal failure, that all accrues, accumulates from uh, lifestyle decisions, whether it's dietary factors or inactivity leading to, to cardiovascular disease and then these outcomes like a stroke or a heart attack and we know we can do really well if we work upstream to um, have healthier behaviors that would avoid those that damage to the blood vessels happening downstream similarly when you look at cancer and we kind of think of it as well there's a genetic predisposition and while that's true the obvious example would be you know not smoking greatly reduces your risk of lung cancer but many other kinds of cancers like gastric cancer, colon cancer, um, have strong ties to our behaviors and our dietary intake. So it's not a criticism when someone's eating something, but it's, it's something that might be make them vulnerable. But it's, it's an opportunity to help them be healthy and avoid a problem to guide that patient towards a healthier diet, for example. So for our, our pediatric practitioner listeners, what are a few things that we can be doing each day, each week to help prevent or fight burnout, compassion fatigue, improve our lifestyle? We're in the middle of this, uh, what seems like this treadmill that's never stopping, right? And so it's how do I recalibrate? So that's a great question. And um, I would say it's taking small things and um, an analysis and a, a reflection that might look at small changes. It might be always having a water bottle nearby. It might be task pairing. So, you know, a corporate executive who's having a meeting on Zoom while they're on a treadmill. So they're getting their exercise while they're having their meeting. Um, our version of that is rounding in the hospital where we're walking around from room to room and hopefully um, going upstairs and not just taking the elevator if that's reasonable um, given the layout. So what can we do? Well, there's a notion of resilience and there's macro resilience, which is, hey, I'm going to survive this pandemic or this earthquake or my house burned down. And there's micro resilience, which is, you know, my phone just rang and there's an unexpected admission and there's all these little things kind of nipping at my attention in addition to the existing workload that's already considerable. So mindfulness practices, whether it's just learning to kind of find our breath, whether it's just who's relatable in clinic who can be a calming presence, a longtime colleague, a medical assistant. You know, I have 
people around me who are wonderful anchoring people that way. And I think it's it's a matter of finding these techniques for coping and mindfulness on the one hand, and then there's a whole lot of physical activity and maybe healthy snacking and eating goals that people can incorporate little by little. And that's the keys. Don't try to transform overnight. Just find little things that help help us thrive and make it through each day in a positive way and not just feel like we barely made it or survived. Because the focus also is on on positive social interactions. And that's where you just mentioned having a colleague at work that, who is a calming presence. And But what about the people we have to work with who aren't at all calming? <laughs> and they're out there for all of but us. So I think that that is the reality. And I think the more anchoring presence uh, or number of people present who are anchoring, the easier it gets to deal with the people that may be sort of uh, not seeing things the same way or or a little bit difficult from our standpoint to deal with personality-wise. So that just becomes a challenge then and more of a game of how can I just show each person the respect and courtesy they need, whether it's a, a challenging parent or whether it's a kid who's not listening or whether it's a, a employee in the clinic who's just not seeming to be motivated or paying attention to details. I acknowledge the challenge. I don't have necessarily all of the answers, but I think we have to try and uh, find equanimity and um, and the, the mindfulness strategies that we can relate to can be very helpful that way. Has it helped you as a physician since you've gotten into lifestyle medicine, board certified in that now with this focus on lifestyle medicine in your personal life and your professional life? I think so. Yeah, and the various forms of that are feeling like, let me let me um, vent appropriately when needed to those you know very positive people at work or the very positive home team. Um, let me go home and scratch the dog's belly, and and she's always happy to see me, and she's mm-hmm. never judgmental, and so that's kind of very anchoring. The in- unconditional love. Absolutely, yes, and that's very real. So being outside, we know, has uh, positive consequences. So think about this. It's a, it's a long, tiring day um, that any of us could have, and we are still dealing with laundry, groceries, dinner, and checking on homework or whatever else is left. But just finding a way to maybe park at the farthest spot away at HEB, and so we're making a long walk into the grocery store or getting outside could check multiple boxes at once. It could be that if you have a list, I sometimes have a list of the two or three doctors I need to call based on the patients I saw that day saying I want to talk to so-and-so about a specific issue on this patient. So it might be that that phone calling is happening during a walk outside, and it might be the walk outside is hitting several boxes of success for us. It's fresh air. It's improving our mood. It's good for our bone density because it's low-impact activity. Um, it's good for our core. It's burning some calories and some steps. So that's win, win, win. I was out at a medical conference this weekend, and I had about 10 minutes in between talks, and I just walked on the river walk for you know seven of those minutes, and I felt so much better, and I, I took the stairs. I, I was preparing for this interview, so that, that's what inspired me. But it, it really did... I felt like it made a difference. Absolutely. I agree with that, Holly. And what I would say is that it may seem where we are like there's no wiggle room in the schedule or there's no possibilities. It's the pressures of the workload. It's the financial, you know, the economic equation in any practice, which is, you know, getting more challenging, you know, seemingly year by year or decade by decade. And I get that. Um, 
But I think I would just say that there's hope in remembering that there are ways to make changes. And sometimes it's that small step. And, you know, one saying that I think is incredible, and I won't take credit for it, is that a journey of a thousand miles starts with one small step. And so um, love it. what you did, which was just being outside, felt good. And if, if we do that consistently, then it turns into a habit. And then we're working on the next habit and the next habit and so on. So, and we, we love quotes here on Pediatrics Now. Um, I think that's such a great one. And so we can break it up throughout the day. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I think tomorrow I'll start waking up at 5 a.m. and using the rowing machine for an hour. <laughs> We're not going to transform happen. overnight. It doesn't happen, no. And so we just work on little things uh, one by one, and that's how we hope to find our best selves. So when we talk about our pediatrician audience, we're talking about strategies for self-care. We're talking about maybe having the healthiest workforce in the practice possible. We're talking about guiding parents to be their best advocates possible for their kids who are our patients. And then we're talking about helping the pediatric patients, of course. So, and how important is a plant-based diet? I know that's one of the pillars that you mentioned for lifestyle medicine. So plant-based diet is not saying it's a spectrum, okay? So on the one hand, there's completely plant-based. On the other hand, there's a very a traditional American diet. And the data is very strong talking about how a plant-based diet gives us, you know, the mic micronutrients, the uh, vitamins and minerals, the building blocks like calcium, um, healthy things like fiber, while avoiding inflammatory inputs and harmful things like cholesterol and saturated fats. So um, that's really a pillar of, uh, of living healthy. And that, and that doesn't mean that it's about giving up meat completely. Um, and so I want to be clear that we're not talking about mandating being vegetarian or vegan, but that is the one end of the spectrum that could be viewed as the most healthy. But for the, you know, we honor that people have cultural and family traditions and they're used to certain tastes and textures. And so it might then be checking that it's white meat more than red meat or it's not processed red meat because there are some harmful components, be it the, the heme component of the um, iron that carries, that comes with red meat or um, the branched chain amino acids and certain other specifics that, you know, make the meat a bit more um, stressful for our bodies. Are you vegan or vegetarian? Uh, I'm vegetarian, but not okay. vegan. Anything else you'd like to mention in terms of from the perspective of the pediatric practitioner? Well, it's a great um, challenge and honor, and we, we are very appreciative of our pediatricians for, you know, stewarding the health of our, you know, future adults and the kids in the community. So um, it's a challenging job because you're at the intersection of taking care of young people who are ultimately under the charge of their own adults that come with them, which is their parents, obviously. And so how do you guide healthy behaviors? You have to incorporate the skill and the finesse of guiding parents whom you're not officially taking care of as your patient, but you're trying to work on that whole family unit. So, um, you're trying to manage a team. You're trying to collaborate with specialists if you're a, a general pediatrician. So it's a very, um, it's a very precise balancing act, and I think it's it's really um, admirable. And it can be such a stressful job at the same time, right? It can, yes. So, how and important? Are, or go ahead. Sorry. I have to volunteer that one of the one of the things that I feel attaches me um, very. I'm very in. Um, 
I find the pediatric community endearing because my own um, family role model uh, uh, in medicine was my mother, who was a pediatrician. Um, I grew up outside of Boston, and she was uh, a pediatrician with subspecialty training in adolescent medicine. And, um, and so I did see this balancing act of how she would work with parents and deal with on-call situations. It seemed like she was the go-to person for the informal questions from various friends of hers who talked about the sniffles or the fevers that their kids were undergoing or they'd <laughs> run into something and they were hopping around or limping. So, you know, just really I saw the dedication and that was very moving for me. So I feel like I know pediatrics with some um, familiar, extra familiarity. She's really Dr. Mom. Yes, very much. <laughs> Did she get worried about every little thing you would get, though? I feel like if I was a pediatrician, that's what I would do with my own kids. <laughs> I hear you. I think experience told her not to worry about some of the little things. So, nice. so um, let's talk a little bit about for our patients. So an article just this week in the New York Times um, said that a doctor would need to work 27 hours a day to really go through everything a patient needs in terms of diet, exercise, sleep, to cover preventive medicine. What advice do you have about that? I mean, it sounds like it's this impossible goal. That is, yeah, definitely an impossible goal. And so what I would encourage is that this, uh, listening to this conversation you and I are, are having is really one aspect of realizing that the system may be configured in a way that doesn't support our pediatricians as much as it could. And what I mean by that is clearly there's not 27 hours in the day and, you know, we have to be efficient. Um, and so we talk about models where identifying areas for improvement could be that we are uh, delegating teaching to an in-house or external team member like a nutritionist or dietitian, um, that we may have a mid-level provider like a nurse practitioner um, who is delivering some information. Um, that we have teaching videos and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of content to cover um, at different ages and different stages. And uh, being efficient is obviously important, but there's a, there are limits to that. So at some point, then we start getting into topics like, well, what's the practice model? Are we putting an unrealistic expectation on this pediatric team that they have to see all these patients and it's just see them and then move on to the next person, but you're not necessarily getting to deliver content and, and teaching in detail. I was talking um, with a pediatrician here in San Antonio the other day, and she was saying how it took a lot of work talking to this adolescent um, about weight and the dangers of being obese and the health consequences and guiding him, And but he lost 100 pounds and... Um, she had tears in her eyes when she was explaining to me how that felt as a clinician, knowing that she had helped this child to go on that, that path. That's wonderful. And that's an example there of the positive psychology of that's why ultimately she's doing it and she cares and that's a win and that's a pick me up. So I, my version of that, that's, that is moving. And my version would be whether someone has had a surgery that's helping them or just comes back in and tells me that they're just feeling better. That is a pick me up and, um, and we need to just embrace those. So do you think preventing diabetes, treating diabetes, is that the main, you know, for here in pediatrics, what we can do for our patients when it comes to lifestyle medicine? And if so, what, what is your advice there? Um, I would say it's about diabetes partly. 
Um, so you can think of it, you can think of lifestyle medicine as this Swiss army knife. And what I mean by that is there's multiple ways to deploy it. Um, one of the reasons that I got involved originally in a conversation with the pediatric department is that they were looking at a journal club article from a program, a neurosurgery training program in South Carolina. And they had recognized that the residents in training and the faculty were not as healthy as they would like for various reasons. And they went about studying how they could do more with taking more steps and snacks and hydration, and they wrote it up. And so the department here at UT Health started looking at that, and that led to conversation with me, and ultimately I, I spoke at, at Grand Rounds. And I, I think the message was, it is about self-care, and you are, whether you're a trainee starting this marathon, or whether you're at mile 13 and you're not even halfway in, but you're in your 40s as a practicing pediatrician, you got a lot of experience, but you're, it, you're mid-career. You, we, re- we really have to honor and care for ourselves. So that's that self-care piece. And then we have to recognize that a lot of times we're in a practice model where we have these valuable human assets who are our workforce, our team, our medical assistant, the front desk people. How do we promote their health? And there are some economic consequences. Like if, they're, if everyone's healthier, then purchasing health care coverage could in fact be more uh, uh, cheaper. And that's cost effective, obviously. Um, and then we get to the central matter of our the pedi- pediatric patients and the adults that come with them, which who are their parents. And I think the, the challenging part there is that parents of pediatric patients may be getting care in an environment that's not emphasizing lifestyle. So really this conversation starts with recognize that we're all in this complex society with different models of care and care delivery. Um, your patient's parents may be dealing with stressors like their own aging parents or job insecurity or food insecurity and those things are very real and we honor those and we have to recognize that that may that may drive decisions about parenting or grocery shopping so how do we give you knowledge to counter certain things that you see that your parent your patients are faced with and so um, I would say lifestyle medicine can help all of those people and all of those stakeholders in all of those areas any advice you could give here to your point the family can't necessarily buy organic groceries every day and fruits and vegetables. I mean, what, what do you say there? What? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question and a, a real challenge. And I recognize that a lot of times, you know, people are dealing with a, a budget where they need to get, you know, everyone fed. And, um, and sometimes the, the best way to do that as far as getting everyone fed is not always the healthiest way. So, I would have to say that there are hopefully resources out there as far as support for healthier choices that may be somewhat, you know, reasonably priced and and realistic. Um, And I think our pediatrician group might know more about how to get certain programs or resources into play that I may not be as aware of. And perhaps we'll put a website in the text for um, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that there, there should be some resources there. There are resources there. I will tell you that that's a uh, really phenomenal professional group, and it's just growing and growing in membership. And ACLM, or American College of Lifestyle Medicine, as you said, Holly, has um, a pediatric and adolescent member interest group. And they have some teaching tools like on uh, toolkits for obesity and for diet. Um, their 
my plate version, which is kind of how we get a balanced, uh, you know, fiber and fruits and vegetables and um, grains and everything we need, protein, um, carbohydrates, everything on there, my plate is a little bit more towards um, plant-based. So they would say less emphasis on dairy because dairy can be inflammatory or or dealing with allergies or lactose intolerance, but still we can avoid dairy if that's the right answer and still get the calcium, still get the vitamin D that we need. Um, so American College of Lifestyle Medicine Pediatric Adolescent Member Interest Group is a small group nationally, but growing and really energized for advocacy to help pediatricians help their patients and to help recognize that maybe payer sources should be doing a better job recognizing the value of a pediatrician-patient encounter for counseling and trying to look at reimbursement issues and really um, support the initiative uh, on behalf of pediatricians. Because really what we're talking about today isn't reimbursed in the practice. It's not. I think if you look at a unit of time spent in the office and if you say we're going to spend 40 minutes with this patient and parents versus 20 minutes, you may not get incrementally enough additional reimbursement to make it feel like it's justified or sustainable or viable, frankly, to have those conversations in depth. So that's when we look at, you know, mid-levels and extenders and dietitians, all of which carries a cost. But yes, increasing the overall revenue for these very important activities is an important goal, and that's front and center for ACLM's member interest group. And are you helping to work on that? I am not uh, I'm part of the member interest group, but I'm not part of the leadership. They have some great um, leaders. There's two pediatricians, one in Indiana and one in Massachusetts, who are the current um, group leaders. So, and our patients, the, the children, they see a ton of ads, right, for junk food. There's not a lot of ads for vegetables or fruits. And of course, it doesn't have to be all organic, but is that something you would say that's important to stress, though, just some sort of fruit and vegetable each day if possible? Absolutely, and the more the better. So to your point, uh, across the street from the high school where my kids went, um, they put in a, I, I forget if it was Krispy Kreme or if it was something that was fast food and junk food, highly processed and refined. Very and palatable. Yeah, <laughs> so that's quick and easy and is gonna draw the attention of those you know high schoolers, but uh, certainly not the best food options. So as much in terms of fruits and vegetables as possible. And I think the whole, the whole conversation is set in the context of, you know, commerce comes in various forms and having a business that stood up next to a high school ultimately is a source of revenue. It's, that's a business that's paying taxes. I get it. But um, maybe on some level in our community, we could emphasize whether it's, you know, at a chamber of commerce level or whether it's, um, you know, our main food distributors, and we have some great, you know, large businesses in town that are our main um, sources of, of groceries. But just promoting awareness and education, there are some great opportunities out there. Well, let's take a case involving a patient. Um, a nine-year-old boy, Samuel, is pre-diabetic. He loves fast food, and he's in an after-school program where he gets little exercise. Um, he has some comorbidities. Um, what, what do you suggest here? 
So what I would say is that that's someone who we would, um, and again, I'm not a, a pediatrician. I want to make that clear, but I think just the awareness of how to tackle someone who has these um, risk factors, I would Im- imagine that that pediatrician encounter would involve sitting with that youngster and the family and exploring, you know, what the meal patterns are, maybe a, a, a journal of what a typical week looks like and whether, you know, dinners are eaten at home or on the go at various activities, um, what their understanding is of healthy eating, you know, what the lunch plan is, and then looking for small changes. Like, can we add, you know, a couple of vegetables here or there or routinely in the lunch box? Um, What does he like to eat? You know, what can we pick that he really loves already? Um, As far as activity, that daycare is a perfect setting to say, okay, well, let's get these kids outside. Are we building in some time on the playground or on the playscape or you know playing kickball or whatever the case may be? Um, but ultimately the and kids are out of the house a lot, school age kids. But ultimately, exploring what his parents' understanding is of their own health and the variables that go into um, good outcomes and whether it's movement, movement as a, as a family, let's go walking together. And, and even if it's a short walk every evening, let's do that. Let's try to build some goals. And then we talk about SMART goals. And so SMART basically means this whole acronym of it's specific and measurable and achievable, it's realistic, and it's time-based. And so we want to have these goals that we can keep checking on. And we sometimes hit a goal and then slide backwards, and that's okay, that's life. But those are the areas I would think would be important for that youngster. And our kids are watching us, what we do, what we eat. Absolutely. Yeah, so that modeling and that environment is so important. So getting the buy-in of the parents to say, yeah, I want my child to do well, what are their own obstacles? And maybe they're, they're trying to do better. They want to do better for their child. They want to do better for themselves. And that nudge of, hey, I could be that source of inspiration and I need to be a good role model for that, for Samuel or whoever the youngster is, that could be critically important. Should we be addressing sleep with our well checkup visits? Yes. So we know that sleep is important for immunity, for long-term cognitive consequences, for um, avoiding you know, weight gain, for um, pro- appropriate energy. It's just an incredibly important part of our lives that we often overlook. And um, a lot of times there's not an awareness of the screen and the screen time so close to going to bed and what represents a proper sleep environment, winding down and not having food too close to when we're trying to be asleep. Um, So we definitely need to see that addressed um, with any patient, adult or or child. Because we sleep better if we haven't eaten within, what is it, an hour or two? Two to three hours, typically. three. Three hours, yes. So let's take a case involving a pediatrician. Um, She's stressed out, seeing more than 30 patients a day, has little time during the week for exercise, much less making it to her children's school sporting events. Sometimes she gets there, sometimes not. Um, She feels kind of depressed and feels like she's a little burned out. Um, Oh, and then there's that flu, COVID, RSV thing, pandemic that's hitting kids right now. (laughs) What advice do you have? acknowledging those are all normal feelings and where are the sources of support? Um, uh, what is realistic as an option? What kind of practice environment 
is it is there is there help nearby is there the ability to tighten the schedule and maybe limit it a little bit what are the documentation tools that are being used i think sometimes everyone's at a different level of comfort in terms of electronic medical record and macros that make documentation easier or sometimes emr just doesn't make our lives easier so um i think acknowledging the multiple variables there um Maybe the midday break is a little bit bigger to allow a recharge and maybe answering phone calls so that there's not phone calls at the end of the day. Um, different strategies. It's it's hard to hard to solve all that all at once, but definitely the the notion of acknowledging that it's it's challenging. I mean, this is very challenging times that we're coming out of where there's a, a redefining of what was normal as far as work and interacting with people, um, mm-hmm. economic stressors for you know, providers for practices for patients and families. So um, looking for help, comparing notes with people that may be doing things differently, that may be ending their day on time and not having leftover encounters to document on the weekend or um, finding ways to keep things simple. If that helps me a lot, if I focus on that, then I can see that, hey, actually this, this worked. Yes. I was able to. Yes. And I want to honor that Sometimes there's, there are demands that cannot be scaled down, and in that case, uh, are there more drastic versions of, well, this practice format is not ultimately sustainable, and I need to be maybe part of a different organization or a bigger organization or one that values my time differently or the expectations of productivity are defined differently. So productivity could be a great conversation with a patient like Samuel and family for 40 minutes that leads to an enormous change, but has to be recognized and valued as such. And kind of reading the patient and the parents, how are they receptive to what you're saying? Right. Um, How important are friends? I know we talked about colleagues within the workspace. What about our friends outside of work? There was a uh, incredibly important would be the summary, and there's a, a study called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and um, it looked at uh, Harvard College undergrads and then a, a sort of age-matched group of inner-city Boston youth, and it followed them for decades. And really the strongest measure of how well people were later in life in their 60s, 70s, and 80s was the number of social connections they had. It wasn't, didn't matter what job you had attained or your nest egg or your, you know, whether you had a, a ranch or summer home somewhere. It was really the quality of the relationships. So we know that matters incredibly. It's caring about others, knowing that we're cared for. It's not, those aren't active uh, um, phenomena that we can measure or sense day to day, but it's just very sustaining. And we have to be intentional about it a lot of times, right? That's right. Um, and I know we talked earlier about, you know, avoiding harmful substances in excess is a pillar of lifestyle medicine, right? So um, don't meet that friend for a drink, or what is your advice there? <laughs> That's a great question. The, the notion on alcohol, and alcohol is one of those traditional substances, right? We know that that can be very harmful in excess. Um, there's obviously the illicit drugs, which, you know, haven't changed much. Um, on alcohol, what you asked, what I would say is there's still this notion of a J-shaped curve where there may be some protective benefit to the heart with a, a glass of alcohol, but 
I don't think you'd find providers saying that they would actively promote having that class. There are other ways to get that heart to be healthy, you know, be it exercise or diet. So um, on the alcohol front, that would be the notion of meet a friend, have a have an occasional drink if that is enjoyable. Just keep it in, in check and don't overdo. And meet for a walk or hike or That's something. That's it, right. The, and these days, I think the other substances that have crept into the conversation over time are the energy drinks, the vaping, the, you know, the caffeine, how many cups of coffee is okay during the course of a busy day for us as providers. Is there, do you have any recommendations there? Or is being conscious of it the first step? Being conscious of it, yeah. I, I think that um, I don't have a specific number of cups of coffee. I try to, I, I'm, I'm less than one per day, so, you know, I don't think I'm overdoing it. Um, but there's all these other, and we have to worry about that for the, the kids out there that are, you know, accessing vaping. And they're, again, the energy drinks are not well labeled and regulated. Um, so that can be potentially concerning. And I have two children who are in, in high school. There's vaping in the bathrooms, they say. I mean, it's, I, it's hard to believe, but we know, you know, that yeah, it's there. It, it's out there, and we know that that can be very harmful for lungs and teeth and in many other ways. Any other advice that you would have for the pediatric practitioner listener or when we're talking to patients before we wrap up, Ajayab? Yeah, the, uh, thank you. The advice would be that this is maybe coming out of left field because it's really not at the core. I mean, the core message in pediatrics is this amazing stewardship of the health of a pediatric patient. And a longtime practitioner pediatrician is taking someone from birth to graduating them and sending them on their way when they're 18 into adult medical care. So that's pretty amazing. And that normal growth and development is a lot of messaging about, you know, things in moderation and get exercise and there's exercise recommendations. But this might be an incremental change or it might seem like it's coming from left field. That's for each person to determine. That might be generational or not. But again, I think the emphasis would be that this is, this is saying that traditional recommendations like American Academy of Pediatrics saying, here's the dairy portion of your my plate. Think of there's even an additional step that can be taken to reduce some inflammatory inputs, to reduce um, you know, saturated fats, and you can still get all the nutrients you need to thrive. So for your patients, this is an emphasis on self-care that can make a big difference for weight management, for avoiding diabetes, for cardiovascular health. Um, and it's also incredibly important for us as adults, so the pediatric community as practitioners in an um, important space, in a high-stress profession of medicine. Um, and, you know, it can have other benefits towards our workforce, right? So we have it's been hard in recent times to find the right people to do the right things in a medical practice. And that may be a shared experience. It may be widespread. It may not be. But um, honoring and protecting and nurturing our human assets, our human resources is very important too. So this lifestyle medicine kind of hits on all of those important areas. And it's very much start exploring, start learning. What is this member interest group? What is this ACLM body? I know about AAP. Let me learn more about ACLM. They're a great group, uh, a robust group um, that's, that's going to grow and grow. I think this has tremendous potential and importance um, in our healthcare delivery. So you see lifestyle medicine being more mainstream in the f 
future part of regular checkups? I see it getting integrated gradually into regular um, adult care, so internal medicine care. I see adult uh, care uh, practices trying to do more and more in their own ways to say we will incentivize uh, or we get rewarded for certain outcomes, we in turn are going to guide you to those outcomes. Um, insurance companies are very attuned to this. Corporate, uh, you know, the corporate mindset is how do we promote healthy behaviors in our workforce. So this is getting worked into the equation in various ways, and um, it just depends on who the stakeholder is. And even just starting, say, today, meditating for a few minutes, sitting somewhere does it have to be quiet what what advice do you have there and do you meditate uh meditation again can take several forms so i would say yes when i'm rubbing my dog's belly i think of that as a form of mindfulness and that so meditation is just a form of mindfulness i do try to just focus on my breath and breathe sometimes and i don't do that as regularly as i could uh, I'll tell you that there's a very interesting and I think valuable concept of salutogenesis. And what that means is that we are, uh, if we picture ourselves as we're doing well when we're on the river bank next to a river and not well as we fell into the river and falling into the river might mean we got uh, an attack of gallbladder pain or uh, we got the flu or we're having to do extra work at work, and we're very stressed about that. Falling into the river calls for someone to jump in and pull us out, and then we're back on the riverbank and presumably okay. Well, I think what I want to suggest to our audience is that salutogenesis says we're always in the river. There's always something that's going to happen, and really it's not about getting pulled out passively. It's about getting um, stronger um, swimming skills. So let's learn to swim better. And um, we can do that with a coach, with the peers, with the buddy system. And the mindfulness practices, which are vast, could be formal meditation. It could be um, carving, woodworking. It could be, you know, planting, gardening. Um, it could be walking with a friend. It could be, as you said, the traditional form of just sitting with your eyes closed and literally focusing on your breath. Or it could be a time with a pet. Um, these are just incredibly important. Ajaya Joshi, spine surgeon and lifestyle medicine doctor, thanks so much for being here on Pediatrics Now. It was a pleasure, and thank you for having me, Holly. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wayman. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.